This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. You could call today's talk something like contemplating the bodhicitta, imagining the bodhicitta, something like that. Something to do with the bodhicitta, anyway. Uh, yes, yeah, so today we're going to be looking into the bodhicitta a bit. As I say, contemplating it, even imagining it. And, uh, and I must say, right at the beginning, how I just get very thrilled for some reason when uh, it comes to looking at this kind of uh, material, this material... Uh, it touches something, um, you know, very sort of deeply in me, always has, and it, it still does. Uh, I first heard about the Bodhicitta properly, I guess, very early on in my involvement in, in the movement, many, many years ago, when I was probably about 17 or 18. And I heard about it probably listening to uh, Bhante's lecture, The Awakening of the Bodhi Heart. I think it's the second lecture in that Bodhisattva Ideal series. Um, I would have heard it on a reel-to-reel tape recorder, just to show you uh, how long ago it was, uh, in a living room in Brighton. Yes, the reel-to-reel tape recorder wasn't some sort of lo-fi, you know, cult. It, that, that's all you had in those days. It was even before cassettes. So, yes, a little trip down memory lane there. Uh, and when I heard Banti talk about the bodhicitta, perhaps evoke the bodhicitta, I think, would be a better word. This is actually a very poetic sort of lecture, I think. I was immediately captivated, thrilled, and, and fascinated. And it had a very, very big effect. I think um, the whole way he talked about it, I, 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 I sort of wanted it to happen, wanted to be taken over by the bodhicitta. I even thought, here's something for you, I was only 19 at the time, after I was ordained, my ordination was such a a big thing for me, I thought, if I just do my sadhana, my uh, visualisation practice every day, surely within two years, the bodhicitta will arise and I will just sail along. Anyway, I was young. But... Listening to that lecture, Bhante seemed to me to be evoking a way of living the Dharma life that I fully resonated with, fully resonated with. Uh, like, really, I think no other way of, uh, that, I, that I've really come across in talking about the Dharma life. So I'm going to begin this talk by referring to the way in which Bhante explores the bodhicitta in that early lecture. That will be my starting point. And as we go on, we'll see how his thinking, his contemplation of his, in a way, his meditation on the bodhicitta has developed over the years. Uh, and although Bhante's exposition of bodhicitta is thoroughly traditional, it has special features, I would say, that have important practical implications. Um, we've already seen, for example, his identification of the bodhicitta, the arising of the bodhicitta with going for refuge, the altruistic dimension of going for refuge. So we've already seen that important practical implication. But in that old lecture, Bhante first of all 
takes issue with the translation of bodhicitta as thought of enlightenment. Thought of enlightenment. Um, Chitta meaning thought, bodhi meaning enlightenment. And you still come across this in translations of Mahayana uh, sutras and other texts. The bodhicitta, even now, is translated as the thought of enlightenment. And Bhante in that lecture says that thought of enlightenment is exactly what the bodhicitta isn't. He says we might be thinking all about enlightenment, but that doesn't mean that the bodhicitta has arisen. It doesn't mean that the bodhicitta utpada, as it's called, has happened. Utpada, utpada, meaning arising. Uh, Bodhi does, of course, mean enlightenment or awakening. Um, It's wisdom and compassion and so on. And chitta can be translated as thought or as mind or indeed as heart. So you could translate bodhicitta as the mind of enlightenment or the heart of enlightenment. And there are various attempts at translating bodhicitta. Herbert Gunther translates bodhicitta as the enlightened attitude. Um, But that's really rather weak. It's much more than an attitude. And a recent translation, this is in the Crosby and um, Crosby-Skilton translation, they translate bodhicitta as the awakening mind, uh, which does bring out the sort of dynamic nature of the bodhicitta. And uh, Bhante's translation in our Sevenfold Puja is the will to enlightenment, um, again bringing out the sort of dynamic, volitional nature of, of uh, bodhicitta. Um, um, that uh, the bodhicitta is something that grows and thrives and impels us, and uh, certainly Bhante, you know, regards the volitional nature of the bodhicitta as of, of being of very great importance, as we'll see as we go on. Um, but whatever translation we use, none of them can be fully satisfactory. Um, none of them can be satisfactory because of the problem of language itself. Uh, in that early lecture, Bhante even says that the word bodhicitta is not a good word for the bodhicitta. No word would be a good word um, for the bodhicitta because the bodhicitta is altogether too far, too vast, too profound, too deep, too multifaceted, too mysterious, dare one say too holy to be encompassed by any words. So what we need to do, therefore, is to contemplate the different ways in which Buddhist tradition, Buddhist masters have themselves attempted to evoke the bodhicitta, to to ponder the bodhicitta. And especially, I want to also consider the way in which Bhante has added to those meditations on the bodhicitta. And we, of course, need to discover the bodhicitta in our actual experience. So in his early lecture... Uh, on the awakening of the Bodhi heart, Bhante says, the Bodhicitta basically represents the manifestation, even the eruption within us, of something transcendental. In traditional terms, the Bodhicitta is said to be not included in the five skandhas. So the Bodhicitta basically represents the manifestation, even the eruption within us, of something transcendental. In traditional terms, the bodhicitta is said to be not included in the five skandhas. It's said to be not included in the five skandhas 
in a short work on the Bodhicitta, the Bodhicitta Vivarana, attributed to the great Master Nagarjuna, which Bhante uh, read in a quite old translation. Um, but Nagarjuna's work says this, The Bodhicitta is free from all determinations. That is, it is not included in the categories of the five skandhas and so on. It is insubstantial and it is always characterised by being empty. One who understands the nature of the bodhicitta sees everything with a loving heart, for love is the essence of the bodhicitta. So the bodhicitta is free from all determinations, that is, it is not included in the categories of the five skandhas and so on. It is insubstantial, and it is always characterised by being empty. One who understands the nature of the bodhicitta sees everything with a loving heart, for love is the essence of the bodhicitta. In his lecture, Bhante says that this is a very significant statement that gives us a tremendous clue as to the nature of the bodhicitta, and it requires, he says, a great deal of pondering, um, and no doubt we'll be pondering a lot in the coming days. And the first thing to ponder is that the is 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 that the five is is the nature of the five skandhas. So the bodhicitta is not included in the five skandhas. So the five skandhas are a way, one of the main ways in which the Buddha Buddhist tradition describes us and our existence, our world, conditioned existence, as it's called, that which is constructed and put together in the Heart Sutra. The Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, um, the Bodhisattva of Great Com Compassion, is described as moving in the profound course of the deep perfection of wisdom, and he looks down and sees nothing but the five skandhas. Nothing but the five skandhas, the five heaps of conditioned existence. A uh, heap is a literal translation of skanda. Skandhas, he sees that everything can be comprised in form, feeling, perception, volition and consciousness. I'm not going to go into these, um, but that's what Avalokiteshvara sees. And these five skandhas are really the basic categories of conditioned, condi con contingent existence. <laughs> this is really basic uh, Buddhism. I think in that lecture, Bandi says, if you want to know anything about Buddhist philosophy, you've got to have the five skandhas and the Nidana chain absolutely down. You've got to, you've really got, it doesn't, that's not the phrase he uses. Um, but you've really got to know them very, very well. But the Bodhicitta is not included in any of the five skandhas, says Nagarjuna. Bhante says that this means that the Bodhicitta is something altogether out of this world, something transcendental. And yet, of course, it is manifesting in an individual. But Bhante says the bodhicitta is not a thought, not a volition. So if we say that it's a volition, we need to bear in mind it's not a volition in any ordinary sense. It's not an idea, it's not a concept. And Bhante said if we must use words at all, all we can say, and you can see, this is just in a, a, a stab at it, really, all we can say that it is a profound spiritual, transcendental experience, an experience which reorients our entire being. 
So when we say that phrase, I rejoice in the arising of the will to enlightenment, don't think of it as anybody's individual will. We're not talking there about the uh, samskara skanda. That's that's not the will to enlightenment. We're all, we're talking about and we're evoking an altogether different kind of will and movement. So it's important to really dwell upon this. Um, the love, the compassion, the generosity that flows from the bodhicitta, uh, that altruism um, that comes from the bodhicitta, is not the expression of anything constructed or conditioned. It's flowing from, if you like, a profound realisation of the empty, transcendental nature of life. It's not your love and your compassion. There's, there's a lovely poem um, that Bantu just wrote in 1950. It's one of my favourite by him. And it, it's a very, very simple poem where I think he's really trying to express some very deep reflections, maybe even insights, I don't know, maybe some experience. Um, it's called The Unseen Flower. Compassion is far more than emotion. It is something that springs up in the emptiness which is when you yourself are not there, so that you do not know anything about it. Nobody, in fact, knows anything about it. If they knew it, it would not be compassion. But they can only smell the scent of the unseen flower that blooms in the heart of the void. Trying to sort of get something across through that poem. Bhante also says that that because the bodhicitta is not found in the skandhas, the bodhicitta is not individual. If it's without self, if it's insubstantial and empty, how can it be mine? How can it be yours? And Bhante uses a traditional... Mahayana simile here, saying that the bodhicitta is like uh, the full moon, reflected in innumerable bodies of water. In the same way there is, as it were, one, although don't take that word one literally, one bodhicitta, and it manifests and expresses itself in and through different individuals. Although even in that lecture he says reflection implies something static, But the bodhicitta, he says, is not static. It's a force. It's an energy. It's the energy of wisdom and compassion manifesting in individuals, working to bring about the liberation from suffering, the enlightenment of all living beings. Uh, But it's nobody's individual will or energy. So when I said, you know, about the bodhicitta being mysterious, I think these we're, we're, we're getting into these mysteries a bit um, in talking like this. And to try and illustrate this in his lecture, Bhante uses the analogy of the Holy Spirit descending on the disciples of Jesus. And he makes it very, very clear that this is only an analogy. He's not saying that the Bodhicitta is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the Bodhicitta. They're completely different spheres of discourse and he's definitely not... um, mixing them up, but he's trying to sort of communicate this idea of the bodhicitta being something 
as it were, transcendent, arising in, touching and arising in individuals. I think you can see what he's trying to point to. That the bodhicitta, this energy, this force, this movement of wisdom and compassion that seeks the liberation of all is not the product of a fixed and separate self. Uh, So much so it seems to be from a different dimension. And yesterday I ended the talk with that discussion of Bhante's about self and other, um, that the Dharma life is all about the complete overhaul, the complete deconstruction of the belief in the distinction between self and other, me here and you out there. In reality there is not such a distinction. But what happens when that belief, that view, that distinction begins to properly dissolve? What would that be uh, when that begins to dissolve? How would we experience that? It's very likely to be, to be experienced as other. If you have an experience of something beyond self and other, it would be so very different from our usual experience, it is likely that it will experience sensed as strange, as altogether other, even other than other, in the usual sense, if you see what I mean. In Japanese Shin Buddhism, you have this notion of other power, tariki, I think it's called, other power, as opposed to self-power. And in the Shin tradition, spiritual life takes place completely through the surrender to other power. Liberation comes from faith in Amitabha's liberating vow. Even your faith is not your faith. It emanates from Amitabha, which is quite a thought. And other traditions, um, uh, early Mahayana traditions, talk about the Buddha's Anubhava, his... uh, as it were, non-dual influence on duality or adhisthana, blessing, grace, that sort of thing. Um, The Buddha's non-dual influence experienced in duality. And this can all sound very strange. It can sound very strange to um, Buddhists, even this sort of language, even people wondering if um, people are trying to smuggle in God to Buddhism and all the rest of it. But it's not. It's got nothing to do with the creation of the world or anything like that. It's to do with the framework in which we operate. It's to do with the framework in which we operate. If we start to really dissolve self and other, when other exp- a different kind of experience opens up, that is likely to be experienced as other, not other in the usual sense. But something strange and mysterious. Whatever, it, I think this way of talking does at least challenge excessive self-reference. And even the idea of us, we're really doing the Dharma life. Um, which of course is helpful, but um, it needs to be modified a bit. We know, yes, of course, that we have to make the effort to practice the Dharma. We have to take responsibility for ourselves, for our life, for our actions. The Buddha is very clear. By you must the zealous effort be made. No one can purify another. Of course, 
we have to really get hold of that very strongly and have a very strong uh, sense of, of responsibility, of taking responsibility for our actions and so on. But if we look deeply, how much of the Dharma life actually does come from us anyway? If we were to look into it. We practice the Dharma life because of the efforts, just on an ordinary level, of so many other people, of so many other conditions. In fact, how much we're doing it, well, it'd be very interesting to examine how much we are doing it and how much we're actually dependent upon the efforts of so many. Right now, we're here on this retreat. We're sitting in this shrine room at Padmaloka. Uh, well, where does Padmaloka come from? We didn't make Padmaloka. I didn't make Padmaloka. Keep Padmaloka going, but Padmaloka has arisen from the efforts and inspiration of so many uh, people. You know, going back to Sangharakshita and the early community here, so many uh, <coughs> living beings have contributed to Padmaloka and still contribute to Padmaloka. The talk that I'm giving, I couldn't give this talk if I hadn't encountered Sangharakshita, if I hadn't, if Sangharakshita hadn't um, been part of the Buddhist tradition and so on and so forth, I couldn't give this talk if I wasn't, you know, living with my fellows at Padmaloka and their influence on me and so on and so forth. The web of conditions is really quite extraordinary. The, the number of, of people involved going right back to the Buddha uh, through the great teachers to Sangharakshita and so on. So many other forces enable us to live the Dharma life. And perhaps too there is something as it were unseen and unknown affecting us and influencing us. And I think this way of looking at the Dharma life uh, also guards against grasping after spiritual experience and personal attainment. It's very interesting in the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara says, attainment to is emptiness. Attainment to is em emptiness. It doesn't mean that attainment is a black hole. But it's saying it's impossible to ascribe attainment to self or other. That's just laughable. Those notions do not apply. But I think we need to see how this might look in someone's actual experience. If you can use the word experience here, I mean, we, even the word experience implies self and other. And recently, Sabuti has published another paper arising from his conversations with Banti, um, which I really would encourage you to read. I, I was sort of tempted just to study this paper on this retreat, but um, maybe we can do, do that at another time. Uh, but this paper is called A Suprapersonal Force or Energy Working Through Me. And really it's all about the bodhicitta, I would say. And one of the things he does in that paper, Sabuti, is reflect on a particular event, a highly significant event in Bhante's life. And that took place in India on and around the 6th of December 1956. And the event took place in Nagpur, in in uh, in uh, central India, uh, and Banti had gone there. That's a whole story in itself. How he ended up at, in Nagpur on that particular day. He'd gone there to teach the newly converted Buddhist followers of Doctor Ambedkar the Dharma. 
this was only six or eight weeks after the great conversion, held in Nagpur. So Nagpur then had a huge new Buddhist community, hundreds of thousands of people, eager, very eager to hear the Dharma. But very soon after his arrival, um, after Bhante's arrival, the news came that Dr. Ambedkar had died in Delhi, suddenly. And the effect of this on the new Buddhist community was catastrophic. Uh, Dr. Ambedkar's followers were incredibly devoted to to Dr. Ambedkar, to, to Baba Seb, as they called him, because of course he'd led them, was leading them out of the slavery of untouchability, the hell of untouchability. And Dr. Ambedkar's death was a terrible blow. It, 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 there really was this sense of they had that Dr. Ambedkar was their leader, their refuge, their protector. He really was like that for them. So there was this tremendous sense of suffering in this new, vulnerable Buddhist community. Let's hear um, um, Bhante's account of what happened. This is a, from this book, uh, Dear Dinu. It's in a letter to a, a, a friend of his named Dinu Dubasha, a woman friend of his who lived in Bombay, who was, apparently he was quite close to. And it was very soon after the event, so it's very fresh and direct. Um, you can also read a more extended account in, in The Sign of the Golden Wheel, well worth reading. But let me just read from this letter. Um, I arrived exactly one hour before the news of Ambedkar's death was received. Immediately on receipt of the news, his followers came flocking to me. That same night, I addressed a mass meeting of more than one lakh, that's a hundred thousand people, now all Buddhists. It was really a touching sight to see them all shedding tears for their lost leader. In my speech, I emphasised the fact that his work must go on and Buddhism be propagated more vigorously than ever. To cut a long short story short, in the course of four days, I addressed nearly 30 mass meetings, and I think I can say without vanity that I created a tremendous impression. Dr. Ambedkar's followers told me that they felt my being there at that critical juncture was a miracle, and that I had saved Nagpur for Buddhism. At first, people felt that the end of the world had come, but after listening to my speeches, which were very strong indeed, they felt full of hope and courage and determined to work for the spread of Buddhism. On the last day of my visit, I gave no less than 11 lectures. The last meeting was held at 1.30 in the morning when 15,000 people were converted to Buddhism. My own spiritual experience during this period was most peculiar. I felt that I was not a person, but an impersonal force at one stage I was working quite literally without any thought, just as one is in samadhi. Also, I felt hardly any tiredness, certainly not at all what one would have expected from such a tremendous strain. When I left Nagpur I felt quite fresh and rested. It's a really, um, you know, quite a passage there. And remember Bantis remember Bhante's um, 
I remember him telling us, some of us, in the very early days, um, um, he told us an account of this, how, how it all just uh, flowed and how fresh he felt um, in doing that. And he said, you know, he'd have this experience of giving talks and there would be no thought. It was just happening. Notice too in the, in the passage that he says at one stage, I, yeah, here we are, at one stage I was working quite literally without any thought, just as one is in samadhi, making it clear that samadhi, deep thought-free meditation, is not something that happens simply in sitting meditation, but something that can happen when you readily respond to the needs of others. And notice too that phrase, my own spiritual experience during this period was most peculiar. I felt that I was not a person, but an impersonal force. I felt that I was not a person, but an impersonal force. So I would imagine there's no sense then of him doing the work. There's no unhelpful self-consciousness. It's much more of a spontaneous, natural response to the needs of others, coming from, well, deep, some deep inspiration, perhaps more than inspiration. I remember, you know, Bhante talks about the last stage of the path being spontaneous, compassionate activity, which he describes as doing what needs to be done. And I always felt when he used to say that, a bit of an anticlimax. You know, you go through the path and then there's spontaneous, compassionate activity and then you do what needs to be done. And I realised that that little phrase is actually really very profound. In the way I understand it, doing what needs to be done, there is nothing between you and others and what needs to be done. There's no defilement, no attachment, no aversion, no delusion. So you do what needs to be done. There's no doubt about what needs to be done. Very profound. I should be clear here in quoting this passage from Bhante where he describes himself as, as an impersonal force. Uh, he, he's not making any claims here that this is the bodhicitta and he's a bodhisattva. He, he won't, he's not doing that. He's just describing his experience. Uh, but to me, it does suggest the descriptions of the bodhicitta as a transpersonal force of goodness in the world and perhaps gives us a little glimpse about how that might, what it might be like to me. I, 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 that's my reading of it. So this idea of something greater, bigger, something vast as it were, working through him, that is also expressed in another way, in another place, in um, a very good little uh, pamphlet called My Relation to the Order, where Bhante's talking about his relationship to the order. Bhante says that he really is, he really wasn't the best person to start the order, to start a new Buddhist order. And this is not, by the way, false modesty. Um, he had so many disadvantages, he said, and so many, there were so many obstacles. Um, you know, and uh, when Zabuti talked about this with him recently, Bhante sort of kind of chuckled and, and sort of underlined the point that really, you know, it wasn't the best person to do it. He was doing what needed to be done. 
And uh, he says in my relation to the order that um, actually he didn't think that he really started the order at all because he says in that pamphlet, he says this, there are times when far from feeling that it was I who took on the responsibility of founding the Western Buddhist order, I feel it was the responsibility that took on me. There are times when I am dimly aware of a vast overshadowing consciousness that has, through me, founded the order and set in motion our whole movement. So I feel it was the responsibility that took on me. And again, when Bhante says this, he's not making a claim. Um, in fact, the opposite is going on. He's actually being modest. And he really does mean it when he talks about his limitations. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make life easy, um, you know, if you get taken up by something like this. In that new article of Sabuti, Sabuti quotes from a letter that Bhante wrote in which he quotes one of his own poems, a poem which just came out spontaneously, unusually for him. I'll just read it because, again, it, it, it underlines this point. I may also say that in recent years, on looking back over the history of the FWBO tree Ratna, I have been amazed at what has been accomplished. At the same time, I have felt, or rather seen very clearly, that it has not been accomplished just by me. It was as though a suprapersonal energy or force was working through me, an energy or force for which, in a way, I was not responsible. I have given expression to this feeling or realisation in my poem, The Wind, which I quote for your benefit. The Wind... A wind was in my sails. It blew stronger and fiercer hour by hour. I did not know from whence it came or why. I only knew its power. Sometimes it dashed me on the rocks. Sometimes it spun me round and round. Sometimes I laughed aloud for joy. Sometimes I felt a peace profound. It drove me on that manic wind. When I was young... It drives me still now I am old. It lives in me. Its breath my breath. Its will my will. So when we uh, consider these and other experiences of Bhante, we, we can see why he would regard the arising of the Bodhicitta as something that would be far more likely to arise in a spiritual community because that's something that uh, that that he, he he started some years after that Bodhisattva ideal lecture he started to talk about why indeed he's devoted his life to the creation of a spiritual community in order uh, we can also see why he would regard the Bodhisattva as not being one person but the Bodhisattva being really the creation of a spiritual community so we can also see why he regards the eleven-headed and thousand-armed Avalokiteshra as the symbol of the order. It's very interesting. I think that way of pondering the order or experiencing the order emerged for Bhante on a solitary retreat, strangely enough. that He took a year off at one point where he was in a, in a chalet down in Cornwall on a, on a cliff top. And he had 
a very vivid sense of the order, even it was a very small order, and even though the order was far away, but he had a very vivid sense of order members being around him and of the order. And it, it was out of this retreat, I believe, he started to talk about the order as Avalokiteshvara. He started to recommend that we do a practice called the Order Metabhavna, uh, which happens uh, uh, these days on the first Saturday of every month at five o'clock local time all order members doing the metta for one another throughout the world. And, you know, given the, the numbers in the order now, in a way you have to start dipping into the order in a much more in a sort of transpersonal sense. I want to contemplate this image of the 11-headed and thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara a little. It's actually rather a bizarre image in, in many ways, and perhaps it's more of a sort of literary um image, um, you know, an, an image of the imagination, obviously images are, rather than something that, um, that you can successfully depict. The depictions of, of, this, of this figure always look rather clumsy, I feel. Um, but it is an image that points to a particular quality of consciousness, a consciousness that transcends individual and collective So let's remind ourselves of the story, Avalokiteshvara, Mahakarunika, the greatly compassionate one, was a great yogi, a great meditator. That's why he wears that um, deer skin. And he took the Bodhisattva vow in front of his teacher, the great red Buddha Amitabha. And he took the vow in a particular way, in a particularly intense and fervent way. He vowed that if before his enlightenment he thought for even a moment of giving up on others and devoting himself to his own welfare exclusively, if he thought that for a moment, just a second, then may his head break into ten pieces and his body break into a thousand fragments. So he practised the Dharma of Lukateshra with great determination and went among the people teaching the Dharma really working incredibly hard to bring about their liberation. He entered a period of deep meditation for a while to refresh himself. And as he emerged from meditation, he looked out on people, on living beings, and saw that he'd actually made very little effect. He'd had very little effect. Uh, Given the numbers of beings given their sufferings, the Dharma that he'd been teaching had had hardly any effect at all. Uh, The suffering went on and on. And so for a moment he thought, well, what's the point? Just for a moment he thought of just living happily for himself in deep meditation. And at once his terrible vow, his terrible oath was activated. His head started to split. His body began to break up. And he was in intolerable pain and he cried out. All he could do was cry out to his teacher, to Amitabha, the great red Buddha who immediately came. And passing his hands over Avalokiteshvara's broken head and body, refashioned Avalokiteshvara, the greatly compassionate one, into a being with ten heads to look in the ten directions and a thousand arms, actually an infinite number of arms, spreading out 
uh, to all beings. On his crown, Amitabha placed his own head, an image of his own head. And in every open palm, he placed the eye of wisdom in the, every open palm of Avalokiteshvara's hands, which are all opening out. And in every hand, he placed a tool, an implement to do a particular work to liberate living beings. His two central hands, in his two central hands, Avalokiteshvara holds a rainbow-coloured jewel, the Chintamani, the wish-fulfilling jewel that grants all wishes. Uh, this symbolises the bodhicitta. Only enlightenment for the benefit of all can fulfil all wishes, all desires. Um, so when Bhante says that he sees this figure as a symbol of the order, he means that the order, all of us in the order, should be reaching up to, should be aspiring to create a community with the bodhicitta at its very heart. A community that is one in the sense of being harmonised around the bodhicitta, that all of us have the common purpose of living from and for the force of wisdom and compassion, of living from and for the greater manifestation of the Dharma in the world. Although one, although that's probably not the right word, although one, at the same time, we are all distinct and individual, like those individual hands holding different tools and symbols and implements. Although one in the bodhicitta, we are unique in our expression of it, in our approach to it. And when you go for refuge, when, you, when you're ordained in this order, you are entering a spiritual community, you will be part of a spiritual community in which you'll be doing all that you can to reach up to the bodhicitta, uh, to harmonise with other order members around the bodhicitta, uh, to also do that in your unique individual way. It's very hard, very mysterious, I think, this quality of uh, consciousness in which you have distinct individuals perfectly harmonised. Bhante sometimes called this a, a third order of consciousness. Uh, there's also a sense in which we'll be opening up to this consciousness. I've talked about as though we're reaching up to it, but there's also a sense in which we're opening up to this consciousness, symbolised by the eleven-headed and thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. Our order, at its very best, is a pale reflection of that consciousness. Sometimes you might experience that vividly. So it's a matter of being also receptive to something emerging, even descending uh, among us. I mean, this is why we d we're doing the Avalokiteshvara mantra in, this puja, in the pujas every night. It's really to invoke this quality of consciousness. I mean, I know some people find the image of Avalokiteshvara not very appealing. Well, don't worry about that. It's the quality of this consciousness, this third order of consciousness, this consciousness which is both individual and as it were collective and which is characterised by wisdom and compassion. That's where we want to meet. So over the next few days we'll be looking at some of the ways in which 
uh, we can work on ourselves and with each other to open up to the bodhicitta, to the eleven-headed and thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, to the suprapersonal spiritual force. Uh, there's so much we could say uh, about this. I'm going to look at three uh, particular areas. Tomorrow I'm going to look at the area of individual Dharma practice. Um, perhaps especially meditation and mindfulness. Um, as well as being having this <coughs> eleven-headed and thousand-armed formed, Avalokiteshvara, we need to remember, gives the Heart Sutra which is that sort of essential sutra which communicates the ultimate depths of the Dharma. So the compassionate activity comes out of those uh, depths and uh, you know, those, uh, the compassionate activity also takes us to the depths. Um, and perhaps we'll, we, we, we need to reflect on that little maxim of Bantis that he wrote very, very early days, the activity of emptiness is compassion. So we're going to look at individual Dharma practice. Uh, the talk after that, um, I want to look at spiritual community, the intensive practice of spiritual community, living and working together in, or, 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 or befriending one another. And I'm going to be looking at that through looking at some of what are known as the Bodhisattva precepts. And in the last talk, I'm going to talk about working with others to spread the Dharma. And I'm going to use the Sangraha Vastus, the means of uh, unification, to explore that. Uh, and the aim of all this is how we can, in as many ways as we can, open up to the full force of the Bodhicitta so that we can all play our part in the uplift, the growth, even the liberation of all beings. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 